Well, uh, thank you, praise team. Thank you, Elder Bob, for presiding. Uh, and uh, thank you, Twani. Sorry, it's been a, such a source of encouragement in my own life. And I want to thank you. <laughs> we could all just go home and let's cry together. And uh, <laughs> man, you are the model of <coughs> perseverance. And uh, <coughs> isn't God's grace so beautiful? I don't know. I'm going to continue. I have a sermon to preach. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, thank you, Ronnie. I don't even know where you are. Where are you? Oh. You know, um, I got to know Ronnie a lot better this year. Well, actually, I think this is the first year he came out, but... Yeah, from the moment I met him, just, you know, a big smile on his face. And you see just how God can change a man. And um, telling me about his past, how bitter he was, how resentful he was, and then to see what God has done is such an amazing thing. And so... I smile through my tears, not because I'm, you know, I'm not sad at all. I'm so uh, thankful to, to God for you and for, <coughs> my voice is cracking, for your salvation in Christ and uh, look forward to many more years of battling together. Um, yeah, I, echo, I echo your sentiment. I don't know if I have the same amount of courage and resolve as you, <laughs> but I know that our God is faithful and that in the end we will get there together and overcome because Christ indeed has overcome the world. So with that, why don't we go to the Lord and uh, ask him to uh, bless, bless our time and bless Ronnie this morning. Father God, we are humbled by your grace. You are an amazing God. We are so unworthy sinners, and yet you choose to save us. I thank you for the salvation of our dear brother Ronnie and how you brought him from darkness to light, how you've delivered him from the bondage of spiritual darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, into this marvelous light in which we all stand. Lord, we want to exalt you and glorify your name this morning, and we want to just lift up this prayer for our dear brother Ronnie that you would continue to give him fuel for the fire, Lord, the fire in his heart, that he wants to continue to persevere, continue to hope beyond hope, to fight this battle, to stand firm in the faith with the full armor of God, and may we as saints come around him and continue to encourage and exhort and pray for him. We thank you for this awesome morning that you've ordained, that we can come and worship your name, O God. You are holy, you are good, and we are but poor beggars at your table. Help us to see ourselves clearly in light of who you are, not in light of each other. May the mirror of God's word condemn and rebuke any self-righteousness in us. May we remember that we have been justified by faith alone in our dear and precious Christ Jesus alone. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. They are new every morning. We lift up all these things for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Whew, oh boy. Not the way that you scripted it, but 
Lo and behold, well, this morning, <coughs> excuse me, this morning takes us to Romans 8, 26 through 30. If you want to turn there, uh, I encourage you to do so. Romans 8, 26 through 30. When I originally wanted to preach Romans 8, I, I didn't know what part of Romans I wanted to preach. Romans 8 is such a mammoth text, such an awesome text. It is like, it's like the best and sweetest text in the Bible because it talks about all the joys and the, the truths and promises related to our salvation in Christ. Um, it, it, it fleshes out what it means that there is no condemnation. And that is just such a joy and such a thrill. And so I was, I was asking my wife, what if I preach all of Romans 8? You know, do you think I could do that within an hour? And uh, you know, she, she kind of thought that I had bitten off a little bit more than I can chew. And getting, getting into it and reading it, how exciting and thrilling the chapter became more and more so because I hadn't been in Romans 8 for a while and then to get back into Romans 8 and just to see all the wonderful truth there. Well, this morning will just take us through 26 through 30. And I trust that you will be encouraged. It was July 24th, 8.50 p.m. in Quee Creek Mine, Somerset County, Western Pennsylvania. A nine-man crew breaches a wall of an abandoned mine, sending in 60 million gallons of water into their working mine shaft. These nine men try to outrun the water, but it's coming too fast and it's coming too strong, so they are soon overcome. By 10.30, the miners take refuge in a small chamber, in a, essentially a small air pocket, if you will. They radio a second nine-man crew, whose members flee one and a half miles to the mine entrance, wading through water up to their necks. Soon thereafter, radio contact with the other nine miners is uh, completely ceased. During the night, the rescue crew comes and manages to drill a merely a six-inch hole in the rock, six-inch hole for air. Officials ascertain that there are indeed survivors there. For over three days, the nine men are trapped, themselves in four-foot-high water with an average ambient temperature of 55 degrees Fahrenheit. On July 26th, they had to get a drill. They had to get a rig that holds a drill from Western Virginia, from West Virginia. This drill weighed 1,500 pounds. Well, on July 26th, as they were drilling into, into the rock, this 1,500 pound drill bit breaks. It halts rescue efforts for over 18 hours. During this time, the men had actually tied themselves together so that none would float away. They would sit tightly, close to each other, maximizing their body heat in the cramped, cold, dark chamber. They only had two lights, and they knew that they could not use them liberally. So most of the time, in four-foot water, 55 degrees, 237 feet beneath the surface of the earth, they were in total darkness. They hoped, and they waited. Interestingly enough, there was no panic, as these uh, miners gave testimony. There was no ultimate despair, no kind of final surrender, I give up. They had resolved that they would live together or die together, but it was still a resolve of strength and of courage in the midst of this overwhelming uh, tribulation. July 28th, however, at 1 a.m., they finally 
manage to reach the miners. They pull down this, uh, drop down this yellow cylinder where they can pull up one miner at a time. And by 1 a.m. July 28th, 77 hours after they had breached that wall, the first of the nine miners are pulled out of the shaft and the rest come up in 10 to 15 minute intervals. All total, 77 hours, 237 feet beneath the surface in a cramped, dark, cold space, and they come out with no major injuries. They were asking for chewing tobacco and asking for beer. But, well, these men hoped, indeed, beyond hope. They waited it out. They did not give up the will to live for three days. Can you imagine being three days in four-foot water with no lights? But these men hoped. These men waited it out, and they only had mere human hope. But this somehow managed to sustain them as they banded together as a group of nine brothers. This mere human hope, this bond that brought them together, allowed them to stick through it for those three dark and unbelievably miserable days. They had but mere human hope. You know, so often our Christian hope pales in comparison to the hope of this world. It suffers, our hope suffers so often from the pressure of trials, from sin and temptation, and just the nagging realization that we are weak, we are incapable, we are finite in so many ways. We are prone to look at the earthly and the temporal, at what we can see, what we can wrap our minds around, and we forget that there is an eternity out there. That God indeed is at work right now and right here in our lives. And that our hope and perseverance are then rooted not in circumstances, not in each other even, but in the eternal God and Savior Jesus Christ who is returning for us. Well, our hope suffers greatly because we are so weak. We are desperately weak. We need help. We need divine aid to come to our rescue to deliver us out of our own faithlessness, our own lack of confidence in God, our puny perseverance, you know, our shallow understanding of the sovereignty of God in our lives. And all of these things, especially as they relate to the you know, multidimensional, the multicolored trials that you and I face each and every day as believers in Christ. So the question then becomes, this is our condition. What do we do? Who, who can we go to? How can we enliven and revive our hope? Well, our text in 26 through 30 of Romans chapter 8 does lead the way. And it gives us two powerful sources for our perseverance. Right? Two powerful sources for our perseverance as we, hope for, as we hope for that future glory. As we long for eternity. As we make our way to glory in the presence of Christ Jesus, we find two powerful sources of perseverance. Well, in your outline, it tells you the first source is the Spirit's passionate and perfect intercession in our hearts, His prayer ministry. And secondly, verses 28 through 30, is the Father's sovereign and benevolent orchestration, His management of our lives, His providence. That's another term for that. Well, let's read Romans 8, 26 through 30. Romans, 20, Romans 8, 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. 
But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. Well, let's just spring right into our text this morning. The Spirit's passionate and perfect intercession in our hearts comes, verses 26 through 30, comes straight out of 23 to 25, where there is a clear emphasis on hope. If you'll just look at verses 23, 24, and 25, you'll see that. In verses 24 and, 20, uh, in verses 24 and 25, there is a five-fold repetition of the word hope. Five times the Apostle Paul speaks about our hope. It's because in verse 23, he has just gotten through speaking about our groaning for our future glory. The whole creation groans itself to be made new, right? And we ourselves as believers want to be made new. We ourselves as believers want the body that Jesus Christ has. We ourselves in our hearts want to be perfected. We don't want this flesh anymore. We don't want this sin. We don't want the tears that come with it and the trials and the struggles of this life anymore. We want to be with Christ and see Him as He truly is and be like Him. That is our groan. That is our agonizing cry. That's the same cry of the earth. And so that is our hope because we know that in the future the redemption of our bodies awaits for us. And so in hope we have been saved. Right? Not in despair, not in a maybe, not in a blind shot in the dark, but in true and genuine hope in Jesus Christ, who is now risen to the right hand of the Father. And so, we glory, uh, for this glory we hope. And that's Romans 8, 24 through 29. And our hope, then, is truly hope, because it's not in the seen things of this world. It is in the unseen. It's an eternal hope, because that which is unseen... Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.18, is what? That which is unseen is eternal. So that's our hope. That is your hope and that is my hope this morning as we come to worship our God in this text. And knowing this, right? Knowing that the eternal thing, the real thing, the substantial, the weighty thing, the glorious thing awaits for us, it strengthens our resolve. It makes our expectation that much more eager, Right? And it makes our perseverance and our hope that much more fortified, that much more strengthened. The hope that we are hoping for sustains us daily. The hope of being with Christ and being like Him, it revives us, keeps us going, keeps us fighting against sin, fighting against our flesh, fighting to maintain our integrity in Christ. However, that perseverance and that Inner hope is often knocked around, is often weakened, right? The fire in our hearts becomes very dim, it becomes very cold. You know, that which was once dynamic and vital kind of loses its air, loses its energy. Why? Because of our weakness, because of our sinfulness, because we don't know how to respond to trials correctly, because we don't understand what God is doing behind the scenes. 
and what God, the Spirit, is doing literally in our hearts, in your heart and in mine, whenever we go to pray. And so Paul highlights the Spirit's intercessory ministry and God's powerful, benevolent orchestration of everything in our lives to accomplish this aim, this hope, our glory. And we're weak, we're fighting, we're struggling, we can't breathe, but God provides the Spirit's prayer ministry and His own sovereign working out of everything in our lives so that it's ensured, it's a done deal, that our hope will be attained. Amen? Our hope will be attained. Well, the Spirit's passionate and perfect intercession in our hearts. Look at how Paul begins in verse 26. He says, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. In the same way as hope helps us, in the same way as hope comes alongside of us and takes us to the object of our hope, in that same sustaining way, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, also helps us, also sustains us. He comes to our aid as God the Spirit, not as a lesser deity, a demigod. He comes to us as God the Spirit, and He sustains us through this prayer ministry. Well, why is such help necessary? What is the reason for the Spirit's help? Paul tells us very clearly, it is our weakness. Our weakness is the specific reason why we need the Spirit's specific help. The idea here is of just general human weakness. The weakness of our creatureliness. The fact that we are just still in the flesh, even though we have been saved, even though we've been regenerated. The weakness that comes from just being human and finite and fallen. That is the weakness spoken of here. The human condition of weakness, both spiritual and physical. And then Paul goes on. right? Paul goes on to select prayer as the area in which our weakness is magnified. He helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should. He selects prayer as the area in which our weakness comes to light. Why do you think he does that? Well, I believe he selects prayer because it is the practice of hope. What goes hand in hand with hope and perseverance? Prayer. Prayer is the practice of hope. Prayer is the practice of seeing the things that are unseen. Seeing the things that are invisible. It's the practice of tapping into that which is eternal. And that is why I believe he picks on prayer specifically to highlight to us how weak we are. Those who long for eternity pray, want to be with God, because prayer brings you right up close and personal with the living God. And yet even then, right, even when we long for God and we pray and we're fighting, because of our weakness... We don't know how to pray as we should, as Paul says. The translation in the NAS, unfortunately, is slightly misleading. In the end, it doesn't really change the doctrine. But it would be better to say we don't know what to pray as we should. We don't know the content of prayer. We don't know, not the form and the manner of prayer, but the actual what? We don't know what to pray as it's necessary. Right? If Paul wanted to speak about the actual how-tos about prayer, like the steps in prayer, he would have given us a different word. But instead, the word here is speaking about the what, the content. We don't know the necessary content 
of prayer. As those who groan within, hoping for the eternal, you know, we have all the right doctrine, we have the Spirit of God in us, we have the Word of God, and yet we don't know what to pray. And that's what Paul is saying. Illustration from Paul's life. Remember last week's sermon, 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9? Even the great apostle Paul, he did not know what to pray. At times, his prayers were not what God intended. His requests were not the will of God. Right? The great apostle Paul, the specific kind of help for which he prayed to get his need met, right? to remove this thorn of flesh, thorn in the flesh, three times. That wasn't the thing that God thought best. See, the answer for Paul did not come in the problem being removed. God didn't just say, okay, zap, thorn in the flesh gone. I relieve you of your misery. Everything is fine. Everything is okay now. That, that thorn is gone. No. What came, what came as the answer, what came to help his weakness was not relieving the pain, relieving the burden, but instead keeping him in that burden but supplying the extra amount of grace. God's sufficiency. My grace is sufficient for you. That was the answer for Paul. And so for us, I think like, how much more do we not know the content of prayer? How many of you know what to pray for exactly all the time? Indeed, our weakness always trips us up in this area. That is our human incapability. Right? Our human weakness. One person said, we're not always clear on what to pray for in any particular situation. We may know generally how to pray. We may know generally the content of a good prayer. But in any given specific situation in your life, it becomes very difficult, does it not, to think exactly, what is God's will? Is this God's will or is that God's will? It's just because of who we are. But, Paul brings in the Holy Spirit right in the middle of verse 26. A strong contrast to our inability. Who comes in to the rescue? And that is the Holy Spirit. He comes in as he came in to Paul's life. He comes here now and supplies the necessary relief effort that presents to God what we should be praying for. The Spirit prays the prayers that we want to pray but cannot pray. The Spirit prays the ideal and perfect prayers for us. What an encouragement, right? He prays those ideal and perfect prayers. Well, let's look at the nature then of the Spirit's help. The end of verse 26. But the Spirit Himself, He intercedes for us. He comes along and petitions on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. As we look at the nature of the Spirit's help, we see that it is the Spirit Himself very strongly emphasized. It is not the Spirit and someone else. It is not a person. It is not the church. It is not Himself willing to pray what right. It is the Spirit of God condescending to pray on our behalf. And He prays with groanings that are too deep for words. Well, this uh, groanings too deep for words has caused a lot of stir and you read different commentaries and everyone has a different opinion. But literally, it just means wordless Groanings. Groanings without words. Groanings that don't need to be actually uttered. Right? So, groanings that are, in a sense, 
uh, if you will, completely spiritual, if that makes sense. There's no language to them. They're not meant to be heard. They're not meant to be spoken. It's not an angelic tongue. It's not human tongues. It is something deep within the heart of the Holy Spirit. Even as Christ then intercedes for us in verse 34, in heaven, but here on earth, verse 26, right in our own hearts, the Spirit does exactly the same thing. The Spirit of God sharing the same essence as the Father of God, right? having the perfect fellowship within the Trinity, He does not need words to express the right desires, the right prayers before the Father. We need the right words. We need to understand all the ins and outs before we come to God. But the Spirit, He intuitively knows because He is God. And His communication then with the Father is of a much higher mode than we could ever hope to attain to, even at our spiritual best, even at the end of the race when we're at our spiritual peak. And notice too that the Spirit's prayers are called groanings. Right? Deep heart cries. These are the, the agonizing and the aching cries of the Spirit's heart. Not uttered with words, yes. But it reveals to us the Spirit's deep care for each and every one of us. Each and every one of you are deeply cared for by the Holy Spirit. James 4, 5 speaks of how the Spirit has this holy jealousy over you so that He would want to just rip you away from the world and your friendship from the world. He has that holy envy in his heart. The Holy Spirit can be grieved by our sin, can he not? So the Holy Spirit is tender and soft, and the Holy Spirit cares for us, because that is his ministry. God the Spirit. Amazing, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit, his two ministries really are to exalt Christ, point everyone to Christ, and minister to the saints as the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is his role. That is his position. That is his joy. And He comes in our hearts and He is aching for our holiness. He is agonizing for our weakness to be perfected. That's the Holy Spirit in you and in me. And note that He continues to intercede. It's not that He has interceded once and that's it. It's not He will intercede. But whenever you pray, He intercedes. It's ongoing again and again. Not just in emergencies, not just in trials, but whenever you come, and unburden your heart to God, the Spirit is right there with His own holy jealousy for you, His own holy groanings on behalf of you. He is there. And that is the nature of the Spirit's help. Well, this intercession then, because it comes from God, because it comes from the Spirit who is God, it is always effective. And that's what verse 27 teaches us. The effectiveness of the Spirit's help. His groanings are always on target. His groanings always match the will of God. Why? Because He is God. And because Him and the Father enjoy this perfect harmony. Paul refers to God, interestingly, in verse uh, 27 as He who searches the hearts. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because He, that is the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God is the one who searches the hearts. Why does he call them that? Because that's where the Spirit of God dwells, in our hearts. So God knows our hearts, but more important than that, God knows the Spirit's mind, 
Spirit knows the will of God, perfect harmony, perfect prayers, perfect help, perfect intercession on our behalf that are always in line with the will of God. So you have God the Father here in verse 27, and He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And that knowing is not just a cognitive knowing, an intellectual knowledge, but it's a knowing of acknowledgement and of response to the mind of the Spirit. God responds appropriately to the mind of the Spirit. Right? What is the mind of the Spirit then? The mind of the Spirit is what the Spirit sets His mind on. It's what the Spirit intends. And what the Spirit intends, as the end of verse 27 tells us, is to have the will of God accomplished in your life. To have the will of God fulfilled in your life. And so, as the Spirit sets His mind on the will of God to make you holy, to make you more like Christ, to make you respond to trials and sufferings in a way that would honor Christ, God responds to that same prayer of the Spirit and together, there's this perfect harmony and interaction back and forth so that the prayers of the Spirit are always answered affirmatively. This perfect prayer, this prayer that is always according to the will of God, the Spirit knows the totality of God's will. When we pray, again, we don't know that. We don't know the secret counsel of the Lord. We don't know why this is in our life. We don't know why that's in our life. We don't know why these things are happening to us. We don't know why God put this person in our life. We don't know why God put this thorn in our flesh. When we come to that realization, often so much later on after that trial, do we not? Or so much after complaining and grumbling and groaning and fighting and giving up and stepping away from the battle, we learn so much later and we forget that the Spirit knows the will of God, and He doesn't. Do, he doesn't just know it, but He does something on. Uh, he does something for it. He prays those perfect petitions. The Spirit understands God's both revealed and unrevealed will, the secret will, and the one that has been shown to us in the Scriptures, and so they are perfect prayers. And both Father and Spirit are faithful always faithful to seek out what is for the best in your life, what is for your spiritual best, what will make you more spiritual, more like Christ. And, even, and so even though we can say that it's us praying and the Spirit interceding, it's not this perfect uh, 50-50 relationship where we're holding up the same amount of weight together and carrying that along on our way to glory. No. The Spirit of God is doing the bulk of the work. Right? The Spirit of God is the one ensuring that these prayers are perfect. It's not us. Our prayers are weak. Our prayers are misguided. Our prayers are always have to be if it be your will because we just don't know. And a lot of times we ask for things selfishly and in a misguided way and we're just completely off the map. And so the Spirit is the one doing the bulk of the work. He's carrying the load to God, right? Because of the perfection that He possesses. However, though, you know, however, this is not, right? This is not a discouragement, right? This is not a discouragement from prayer. Like, don't pray now because 
You can't pray. You stink at prayer. Only the Holy Spirit is good at prayer. So you might as well just say, Holy Spirit, pray the right prayers for me, and I'll leave the rest to you. No. Like, Paul does not put that in here. Put this in here for that purpose. Um, the purpose of this is to encourage us to pray even more, because despite our weaknesses, perfect prayers will be prayed. Not by us, but by the kind and loving and groaning Holy Spirit. This does not mean we're not to pray, nor does this mean we're not to be definite in our prayers. Well, we don't know the will of God, so I guess I can't be specific anymore. No, we are to be specific, right? We are to be definite. We are to pray exactly what our heart's desire is, what we want to pray for. We are to lay it out before the Lord. But what this verse teaches us about specific prayers is that we're not to be presumptuous. We're not to say... We're not to think, all right? Our attitude must not be in this prayer with a specific request. That's God's will. It's going to be done. God's will is for my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister to be saved, to be healed, to be this or that. That's not necessarily going to happen. God's answer may be, "My my grace is sufficient for you and leave the situation as it is. And oftentimes, is he not in your own lives? You can attest to that. How many times you've prayed for specific things like that with very great distressing situations, great sufferings, great trials, great problems, and God didn't answer by removing those problems, right? He answered as he answered the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't be presumptuous. You can be specific and definite. God knows your heart, right? He knows why you are praying those specific and definite prayers. So lay it all out there. Confess to him everything. Throw up all your desires to God. That's what prayer is. A true wish sent Godward. Send them up there. Keep sending them up. God loves it. Talk to Him often. Keep sending Him those requests. But remember, don't be presumptuous. You don't know the will of God. Your prayers in these times then must be measured by a healthy dose of if it be your will. Right? Even as Christ prayed, if it be your will. Not that difficult, right? Have that in your heart as you pray. You may not necessarily say that, but have that as an attitude as you come to the throne of grace. And so remember that God will answer in due time according to His good pleasure, not our pleasure. In the big, in the big picture of things, you know, our, our petitions and prayers that are consistent with God's will, they will receive yes answers. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 tell us that specifically. They will get yes answers. But, 1 John 5, 14-15 doesn't tell us that the yes answers will be exactly the way you wanted it. See, sometimes they come in the form that you exactly asked ask them in. You requested specifically for this, the answer was very specific and matched uh, your request. But sometimes the answer yes comes in the essence of the form you asked for. Right? And it can come immediately or it can come after a period of waiting where God is wanting to prove your faith, wanting you to bear spiritual fruit, wanting you to wait, be patient, have trust in God, build up your faith. But selfish and misguided prayers, obviously, uh, these things can receive a no. You know, you have spiritual prayers, seemingly right prayers, but you pray them for wrong reasons. You know those prayers? <laughs> selfish and mis- misguided maybe. You know, ambitious prayers, but they're not from the right motives. They're right prayers, but wrong heart. God will put 
uh, a block on that, put a no, but he will then bring you or situations around your life to the point where you and the wisdom of God are properly aligned and then he will answer accordingly. So it is up to us to pray and to pray continually, but to remember that God keeps his own clock. Right? He, wa- he is in control. It is not us. But be encouraged because the Spirit prays for you and the Spirit brings up perfect prayers. So are there prayer requests in your life that are not being answered according to your desire this morning? I bet there are. No, God is saying wait. Or God is saying no. And yet, are you content to wait and pray and through that process, not be discouraged, not complain, right? Not lose your joy, not let that rob you of your happiness in Christ, but you continue to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. The Spirit, as one person wrote, is like a mother kneeling at the bedside of her sick child. And we are that sick child. And she is presenting the needs, the mother is, of that child to the Heavenly Father. That's what the Holy Spirit's role in verse 26 and 27 is. And like a mother, the Spirit knows the deeply hidden needs of our hearts. Those needs that oftentimes we don't even know, that we're not even aware of, right? We think we have these needs, right? These absolute necessary things that we, we need, but they're just wants. The Spirit truly knows your heart, truly knows what you need. But unlike a human mother, the Spirit's batting average in presenting the right prayers to God is a thousand. He never misses. It's always a hit. It's always on target. So a great encouragement here in 26 and 27 that whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, God's will is being done in our lives. God is taking us from one glory to the next glory. God is transforming us day by day from an immature Christian to maturity. God is taking us on this road to Christ, on this road to glory. And that is a great source of encouragement, a great source of perseverance for you to continue to fight, to continue to hope, because the Spirit's prayer ministry is on your side. And what better person can you have on your side than the Holy Spirit. This is a certain promise from God. Whenever you pray, this is not, right, this is not conditional. This is a certain promise from God to sustain our hope, to direct our way to Christ. And it's a lofty thought. It is such a God-centered, God-glorifying, God-elevating thought that to even understand what it means for the Spirit to pray for us and to groan on our behalf to God the Father, Him being God Himself, It just does not make sense. We cannot plumb the depths of this. And yet that is God's powerful source of help and encouragement to us this morning. That we cannot understand it, but we have faith and we believe in it. And because we believe in it, and we know that it's true, it's in the Word of God, it will sustain our perseverance. And likewise, the next source of perseverance in our outline, it doesn't get any easier. It gets even more lofty. You want to talk about the Spirit's intercessory ministry uh, in our hearts? Talk about God providentially working out every single detail in your life for your spiritual good. And He has done this 
from before the foundation of the world. Our next source of perseverance is the Father's sovereign and benevolent orchestration of our lives. Catch that. Sovereign and benevolent. Right? Not just an impersonal, cold, mechanical, rigid God, a robot God, right? God that is warm, God that is tender, God that is looking out for us, looking out for your holiness and mine. The Father's sovereign and benevolent orchestration. We see here in verses 28 through 30 that in the Father's orchestration and working out of everything in our lives, the central goal of the Spirit's prayers are met. What is the central goal of the Spirit's prayer? It was according to God. So it's that the will of God would be done. What is the will of God in our lives? That we would be what? Like Christ. We would be glorified. We would be at the summit of our sanctification. You know, glory. We would be like Christ. That is the Spirit's prayer. That's His aim in interceding for us, whatever the situation may be, right? And now look at 28 through 30. God then takes every situation in our life and maximizes it to bring out what? To bring out His will for us. To bring about our holiness. To bring about our ultimate glory. Our Christ-likeness. That is the source of perseverance this morning. The apex of God's will for our lives is to become like Christ. And so as the Spirit intercedes, and God executes His sovereign purpose, God's eternal will for, will for believers... For those who are called according to His purpose is being accomplished. Because that's His purpose. That's His will. That is our good in verse 28 that's being done. Our highest good. What is our highest good? Again, to become like Jesus. Both in our bodies and in our characters to become like Christ. The Spirit prays in perfect harmony with God's will and the Father's all-embracing providence ensures then that as we persevere and as we fight, our perseverance will be, in a sense, rewarded. Your hope will be fulfilled. Your truest, deepest desire to be like Christ will be accomplished in your life one day because the Spirit and the Father are on your side. Well then, let's just examine the nature of this orchestration And secondly, the scope and purpose of God's orchestration in verses 28 through 30. First of all, the nature of the orchestration. Verse 28. And we know, right off the bat, we know doctrinally, we know experientially that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Causes all things to work together for good. Don't you love it when the Bible uses all and always and every and never, black and white, comprehensive, universal, right? All things, not some things, but all things to work together for our good. See, it's not fate as the world would see it or luck or destiny. You know, you make your own destiny or blind chance. And it's not us, not by our manipulation, by us working the situation or putting on good feelings. Oh, that's good because I must feel good about it. It's not us forcing ourselves in that way. It's not even our moral superiority or our righteousness as believers in Christ that makes things turn out for good. God turns it out for good, irregardless of what we do. 
That is God's sovereign work in our lives. Instead, God, right, not fate, not luck, not chance, and certainly not us, God is weaving all these different strands of your life, and he's making this marvelous tapestry. So after, after a while, you know, you step back from that situation, you step, step back from your life, and you see all those dots connected now. You say, oh, wow, this happened so that it would lead to this, so that it would lead to that, oh, so that my uncle would become saved, you know? You, you see all of God's workings out and you are amazed because God has done this on his own and you didn't even know it and you didn't even necessarily ask for it because you didn't know what God's will was. You were so self-centered, but God was working. This is the truth. This is the wondrous reality that we have. God has used your sins. God has used your sufferings. God has used your pain and your agonies and your trials and everything else, good or bad, and made a good thing out of it. He has made holiness out of it. Your Christ-likeness. And the full breadth, the scope of this work, we will not see until the end. right? When we are glorified, then we'll be able to see in heaven, wow, God, you worked all of these things out. How did you do it? How come, how come I didn't know? And we will see the beauty of God's sovereignty then and there. We don't even begin to see how God is maximizing, do we not, on a day-to-day basis, how God is maximizing all the particulars of your life for your good? Can you say that with full confidence? Oh, I see this, I see that, I see how God is working. We don't know why these things are in our lives. Sometimes we get a, we get a faint glimmer of what God is doing. We get this small, meager insight. Oh, I see something going on here. We don't exactly know. I see why this person has been put in my life at work, this unbeliever, but... You don't know what God is doing. You may ignore that unbeliever. You may shun that unbeliever. You may just think of him as another man in the cubicle. But that unbeliever God has put there. And he started talking to you. You're like, why is he talking to me? I don't want to talk to him. But he has started talking to you. Because God is working in your life with every particular detail to do one great work to make you holy. This is God behind the scenes. This is the the behind-the-scenes work. The Spirit's behind-the-scenes work, God's behind-the-scenes work, and we are completely blind to it. Job 26.14 Behold, these are the fringes of His ways. Right? It's just we see the edges of His cloak, and how faint a word we hear of Him. God's will revealed in the Scriptures seems so powerful and clear, But when it comes to our life and understanding God's will and Him maximizing holiness out of every situation, you know, we just hear, we hear it not like thunder as it should be, but we hear it like just a little dud, a little tap. But His mighty thunder, who can understand? Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. How unfathomable are His ways as He gets us to glory, as He gives us perseverance and hope. We can't figure it all out, but we know God is working. We trust in Him. We trust in His Word. And that encourages and inspires hope in us. And this promise of God's sovereign work, note the end of verse 28, it is for those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. It is only for believers. It is not for the world. And note that we are called according to His purpose. 
this purpose is then this divine conspiracy where Spirit and Father working together behind the scenes to bring about His will, to bring about glorification. That is His purpose, and we are called according to that. That is our end. That is our destiny. That is our hope to fight in this Christian race. Because of our weakness, however, and our worldliness, our self-centeredness, our over-dependence on circumstances to determine how we will feel and how we will act, we often forget that there is this divine conspiracy working for us. Against this tendency, then, we must remember that the Spirit's prayers all aim toward glorification, and God works everything together for that same end. This is the truth that must continually resound and echo in our hearts and minds as we come to prayer and as we live this Christian race, as we fight to persevere to the very bitter end. We must remember these two holy and awesome truths. And we are even more certain of this reality because of verses 29 through 30. To finish it all off, Paul shows us the scope and purpose of this orchestration. And he says that there are five things that God has done. And this has been called the golden chain of salvation. It is one of the most encouraging and just heartwarming, nourishing verses in the entire Bible. This is one of those verses that just gets stuck in your mind. And whenever you find yourself in a rut, this verse pops up in your, in your mind and comes right to the forefront. And it allows you to breathe in peace and to walk with perseverance. The scope and purpose of this orchestration is shown in this five-fold chain that God forged from before the foundation of the world. Let's take a closer look at this chain, uh, chain very briefly. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, may, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He foreknew us. In verse 29, the actual emphasis is on predestination. Foreknowledge is almost like a side thought. Well, what is Foreknowledge. Very basically, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the theology here, but it's God setting His covenantal love and affection upon us, and He's done that regardless, um, not regardless, not looking at our faith in the future. It's not He saw our faith in the future and then said, oh, I'll save Him. But instead, He set His love upon us before we did anything. And that's foreknowledge. In Romans 11:2, foreknowledge is contrasted with rejection. Right, outright rejection versus just outright pure foreknowledge. Before we did anything, God sent, set His affection and love upon us to save us. Secondly, however, He predestined us. Predestined us. This is where we see the purpose of God orchestrating everything. Because the purpose of predestination is to conform us, body and soul, immaterial and material, to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the good of verse 28. That's the will of verse 27. 1 Corinthians 15.49 And even as we have borne the image of the earthy, right, this human body, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, Christ's body. Philippians 3.21 Who, Jesus, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That is the purpose of predestination. God planning and setting that plan into motion before the foundation of the world that you are His child. That is predestination. And as, as His child, 
He wants you to become just like His Son, God, the Son, Jesus Christ. And why does He want that? The rest of verse 29 tells us. He wants that because that makes Christ the firstborn among many brethren. That exalts Christ. That makes Christ preeminent. That raises Christ in the eyes of the world. That makes Christ, in a sense, king and ruler of all. That lifts up, magnifies, elevates the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, God's ultimate goal in doing all of this, right, is to elevate Christ, is to magnify and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that, of course, glorifying Himself. That is not necessarily to glorify you, although that's there. Of course He wants to glorify you, and He will. But because our glorification glorifies Christ, that is the aim. And that is really the undergirding motivation behind all of this working behind the scenes is to glorify Himself through our conformity to Christ. Isn't that amazing? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Why is He the firstborn of all creation? Because He created the world. doesn't mean He was actually uh, conceived and born uh, before His incarnation. He was always God. He was always there. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. That's Colossians 1.15 and 1.18. Well, after that, Paul just finishes, and it's almost like you hit the climax, and then he punches you with more. He punches you with called, justified, and then glorified. Called, obviously, is God's work in history. He summons you through the gospel to himself. Those he already predestined, he summons you. He calls you into his fold by the gospel being preached. And then he justifies you. Right? He declares you righteous by the faith that you exercise, the faith that he gave to you. And then at the end of all of that, the last link in the chain, the greatest of all, He has glorified you. That's link number five. The summit of our salvation, the finish line of our faith. Note that Paul speaks of it as if it's already done. Right? In the English it's translated as the past tense. The tense of the verb stresses the certainty of this action. It will happen. You can more than count on it. This is God's promise. It's almost as good as done. In God's mind, eternal mind, it's already done. Just in practice, in history, it's not done yet. Persevere in hope, then, with the eager anticipation of your future glory. Persevere. Fight. Hope. Because it will happen. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. The nature and scope and purpose of God's beautiful and marvelous orchestration of everything in our lives is a powerful source of perseverance. And when we are discouraged and distraught, there are fears and anxieties and worries, and, you know, we have this desire not to finish out the Christian race. We have this desire for a moment to take a breather, to just not struggle with that sin anymore, not fight for our holiness anymore. When we're hit with those feelings, when we're overcome by those thoughts, when you've just about had it, you turn to these two promises. You remember that these sources of perseverance are there for your taking. They are not some mysterious truths that you you need to 
a study scripture for years and years and years on end before you find immature, mature, new believer, old saint. These promises are there for you, for the taking. Be greedy with them. In all honesty, be greedy with the promises of God. Take hold of these things because they are there for your encouragement, the Spirit's intercession and the Father's orchestration. Well, here are some final concluding applications for your life. I know we've covered many applications, but here we go. The Roman believers were suffering. Verses 17 and verses 35 of chapter 8 tell us that they were suffering in some form or another, most likely being uh, some form of persecution. Not yet physical persecution, but the societal persecution that Christians experienced before the heat was turned on. So they're in that situation. And Paul reminds them of the Spirit's role in prayer to keep them, and then, of course, to keep us, by application, persevering and fighting against our tendency to remove ourselves from the front lines. He reminds us of God's role in our lives to use both good and evil, both joys and tribulations, to make us more like the Savior. Why does he do this? Because our natural tendency is to waste our sufferings. Our sufferings have so much potential within them to be maximized for our good. But we are so weak. We are so selfish. We waste our sufferings. We waste our trials. Don't resist the amazing spiritual riches that are there for you during tough times. Take them. James 1, 2-4 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And when you let endurance run in your life as you persevere, what happens? You become complete, lacking in nothing. That is His promise to us in trials. And if you don't understand this, if you, this, this wisdom doesn't hit your heart, and you can't live it out, verse 5 in James chapter 1 tells us, let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. He'll give it to you. Genesis 50.20, the clearest example in the Bible of a story where God is working out some evil for good in the life of Joseph, right? Joseph was sold off to the Midianites by his brothers. And he went through a lot of suffering, and then through all of that, God used him to save Egypt and to save his own family and save his people. And as for you, talk, Joseph talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, you meant wickedness towards me, but God meant it for good. Why? in order to bring about this present result, where we stand right now, to preserve many people alive. God knew this all along. This was his divine conspiracy. This was his plan. Now Joseph knows it. Now his brothers know it. And they all rejoice together that God could turn sin into something that is good. You just don't know when God, what God is doing in your life until that situation works itself out. Then you see how God was caringly and tenderly maximizing that situation. So don't waste your sufferings. Don't be selfish in them, because as you take hold of those sufferings and you find the endurance that's there for the taking, other lives and souls will be mightily blessed. You don't know how many people your lives could touch through your sufferings, especially through your trials, because the comfort and the consolation that you can bring to believers and the testimony that you can give to unbelievers Man, that happened to him, and he smiled all the way through it. That is a great testimony. And unbelievers can then glorify God when God visits them. Secondly, do you 
pray biblically? God wants you to pray, of course. He delights in the voice of His children. He delights that you want to be close to Him through prayer. The greatest way you can be close to Him personally. And to that end, He has Himself ensured that you will be closer to Him by providing these two sources of perseverance. So knowing all of this, we need to seek to pray more and more biblically. Because that's where the will of God is found. We will never perfectly pray. That's why the Spirit is there for us to help us. But praying the scriptures is a wonderful tool to keep your mind sensitive during sufferings, to keep your mind aware that indeed God is working. It makes your mind sharp spiritually so that you are aware of your surroundings. Whatever you're reading, as you go through your daily Bible reading, pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that for yourself. Practice praying the scriptures on a daily basis. Turn the text immediately into an occasion to praise and then to petition God. Well, thirdly and last is this, comfort and counsel believers using the promises of God. So often we just kind of give Christian platitudes, these high and holy sounding truths that are really shallow, just filled with air. But give them the meat of God's word to comfort them, the true promises of God to help them persevere to the end. Know these promises well and use them to heal the wounds of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ here in this congregation. And as you comfort them with one hand, on the other hand, after you've comforted them, urge them on to greater heights of spiritual maturity. Help them see their troubles and their trials and their wounds as God's platform for our sanctification. Give them a supernatural pep talk through the Word of God. No human words or comfort and exhortation can do the job for us. Truly, the Word of God is our lasting comfort and our eternal counsel. And because of that, that's why Christian perseverance is lasting and strong. It's rooted in God's Word. And it's rooted in who God is. Just remember these promises. Take them to your heart and live them out. Let's pray. Father God, it is a joy to remember your promises this morning. We thank you that your goal is to glorify us and through that glorify your Son and yourself. We thank you that you've given us sources of perseverance to keep us fighting, to keep us on the way so that we would not remove ourselves from the battle. May the hope within us burn brightly because of these sources of encouragement and hope. And may we realize, O oh Lord God, that at the end of the day, you are sovereign and we are your creatures. We must completely surrender our minds, our bodies, our lives to you because we just don't know what you are doing behind the scenes. But we believe in you, O oh Lord, that you are maximizing everything for our good and your glory. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.